The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Now, good afternoon. You're all very welcome to today's second seminar in our 2021 um, seminar series. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Patrick Walsh, and I'm here in the dual role today as Assistant Professor of 18th Century Irish History and as Co-Principal Investigator with my colleague Dr. Kieran O'Neill on the Trinity Colonial Legacies Project, a two-year research initiative which is seeking to research Trinity's historic links with empire and colonialism. George Barclay and his slave-owning activities in America and Rhode Island have played an important role in starting these discussions here at Trinity. And reconsidering his legacy is very much part of the ongoing research agenda, though we don't wish him to overtake everything entirely. He is, I think he certainly, certainly has a role in that project. And as such, it gives me enormous pleasure to introduce today um, to the Early Modern Seminar Series, Professor Scott Bruniger, who's coming to us from Virginia Commonwealth University, and he's just escaped a fire alarm successfully, so we shouldn't have um, any sirens in the background, which you never know, um, who's going to talk to us about rethinking George Barclay. And Scott is currently a Dean in the Faculty of Arts in Virginia Commonwealth University. He's an historian by background, formerly in South Dakota, and he's best known for his book, Recovering Bishop Barclay, Virtue and Society in Anglo-Irish Context, and the co-edited collection, The Bonds of Society, Sociability and Cosmopolitanism, Cosmopolitanism on the Fringes of the Enlightenment, as well as numerous articles and chapters, um, including some on Irish, some on Atlantic history during the 18th century. He's also, for a long time, was the longtime host of the sometimes raucous, always intellectually stimulating Irish caucus at the American Society for 18th Century Studies Conference. And some people will know him from that, from that role appearing here at various conferences as well, um, where he's always, I think, put his expertise on sociability to good use as well, his, his intellectual interests. So without further ado, I want to hand over to Scott, who's going to start rethinking George Barclay. Well, well thank you. Uh, and thank you for, for such a gracious introduction. Uh, after coming in from the fire alarm, I don't know if I really deserve it, so we'll see how it goes. Uh, and I'd like to thank you uh, collectively for having me today to, to talk about something that I think is both timely and extremely important as we grapple with the past. While the focus of my talk today will be on George Barclay and how aspects of his Bermuda plan may change how we as historians and citizens of the 21st century view historical figures. Um, today is also a particularly good day to, for this talk because in the United States it's Columbus Day, as you may be aware. This is the day that uh, celebrates Christopher Columbus. Um, and as a celebration, this has come under fire over the past 10 or 15 years. At least 10 United States um, states to, uh, celebrate today as Indigenous Peoples Day. I um, mean, there's been a great deal of momentum towards changing this. Last month, right down the street from where I'm sitting in Richmond, Virginia, uh, the city removed the statue of Robert Lee from Monument Drive as a way to further grapple with the legacy of slavery. While Barclay's engagement with these reprehensible practices was less direct, it's still important to fully understand what he did and his ultimate goals if we were to assess and contextualize his legacy. And while we could talk about a number of issues upon which his legacy may be questioned, today I'm going to focus on his action during, during the 1720s that were, that were uh, primarily aimed towards founding a missionary school in Bermuda. 
Now, if you want to sort of view the, the early origins of his legacy, though, when he died in 1753, uh, the, the predominant view was that the Anglo-Irish world had lost not only one of its foremost philosophical minds, but one of its most compassionate figures. As news of his death spread, his family received condolences from religious and political leaders throughout Britain and Ireland, while his obituary in the London Evening Post recorded the pious nature of the good bishop's passing. To his contemporaries, Barclay had gained a reputation as a singular paragon of virtue, expressed by Alexander Pope's famous attribution to him as having every virtue under heaven and Swift's contention that Minerva had left him virtue for a guard. Later, Immanuel Kant would add to what had become a chorus in his analysis of the good bishop. Now, despite these contemporary valorizations of his morality and piety, a close analysis of Barclay's career reveals that this easy characterization of his virtue should be revisited. Not only did he serve as a high-ranking member of the Anglo-Irish ascendancy during the period of sectarian division, but his plans for the new world harbored extremely problematic attitudes towards Native Americans and slaves. Furthermore, his only published poem, America or the Muse's Refuge, written in 1725-26, was perhaps the most forceful 18th century articulation of the classical notion of a translatio impere, which in turn supported colonization in the Americas. Now, these concerns are particularly relevant today, and recently a number of questions have been raised about his legacy. For instance, in 1721, Yale graduate students publicized the fact that he had purchased three slaves as part of his plan to set up a missionary college in Bermuda. In fact, uh, this fact, coupled with his gift of these individuals, so to speak, gift, uh, has led to questions about uh, his use, uh, the use of his name for one of Yale's residential colleges. Berkeley, California was named for the philosopher due, his, due to his famous poem, but also has some similar issues. In this case, there's a, been a petition to rename the city and the University of California, Berkeley. Finally, the appropriateness of Trinity College's own Berkeley's library has been questioned, as you are probably more, more aware of than I am. But in each of these cases, modern assessments of Barclay's actions have called his legacy as the good bishop into question. So today what I wanna to do is contextually examine Barclay's contributions to early 18th century missionary activity in the Atlantic world, paying particular attention to how issues of race informed his plans and legacy. And in particular, I, I wanna provide a broad overview of the Bermuda plan and note three distinct aspects that can shape our understanding of his legacy. First, it's important to remember that the overall goal of his Bermuda plan was a con conversion of Native Americans. While ultimately this plan failed, it's important to recognize that this scheme harbored attitudes that belie the popular image of the good vision. Secondly, colonization in the New World in general, and Newport, Rhode Island in particular, was linked to the slave trade. While Barclay's proposal did not directly address the issue of slavery, his personal involvement in this practice raises some important questions about his legacy. And finally, Barclay's legacy um, in, uh, in, in his Bermuda plan inspired his only, public, his only main piece of poetry, America the Muse's Refuge. And in this important piece, Barclay pointed to the decay of Europe and the rise of empire in the arts in the West. Um, and so what I wanna to do today is look at these facets of his plan within the broader context of early 18th century Atlantic thought uh, to see how relevant they may be to the questions that are being raised today both in the United States and perhaps just across the square from where you're sitting. Now, as, uh, as early as 1722, Barclay determined that the most appealing prospects for future development lay in the new world. In a letter to his close friend, Lord Percival, he confessed that it is, quote, now about 10 months since I have determined with myself to spend the residue of my days in the island of Bermuda, where I trust in Providence that they may be the main instrument of doing good to mankind. 
At the heart of, of Barclay's missionary venture was a desire to use his college to be named St. Paul's to teach clergyman strategies for propagating Christianity among what he called quote unquote savages. Even more ambitiously, Barclay imagined that this institution could be used to train Native Americans in Christian re religion, making them quote, the ablest and properest missionaries for spreading the gospel among their countrymen. countrymen. Through this method of propagating Anglicanism, Berkeley, ho Berkeley hoped to instill a firm foundation of Christian values in all aspects of colonial life. And the years between 1722 and 32 were primarily devoted to planning, organizing, and implementing this enterprise. And it's important to note that during this period, he not only lobbied friends and government officials, but he worked tirelessly to persuade the public of the scheme's value. Daniel Derry, one of Percival's cousins living in Dublin, testified to Barclay's early enthusiasm. In a letter, Derry noted that Barclay sets forth his Bermuda, quote, set forth his Bermuda designs with the same earnestness that he really and bona fide pursues, pursues them. I'm not allowed till I, see, till I see you to name names, but you will be surprised when you hear the company that is engaged to go with him. Young and old, learned and rich, all desirous of retiring to enjoy peace of mind and health and body, and of restoring the golden age in that corner of the world. Convinced of Bar Barclay's earnestness, Percival's response to the young clergyman advised him to seek uh, assistance from the government to facilitate this plan. He suggested that if successful, Barclay's name might one day be exalted, quote, beyond that of St. Xavier or any of the other most famous missions abroad. Barclay's zeal for the Bermuda project was exhibited even during the struggles for uh, preferment. In the same letter in which he announced that he would seek the deanery of Derry, he confessed that he primarily saw this office as a means to further and the further end of his missionary goals. And again, outside of Barclay's close circle of friends, the news of the Bermuda plan generated great momentum. Uh, this was not an isolated incident. This, this was sort of the thing that got people excited during the mid 1720s. Uh, Pope related a story of how at a dinner of the Scribblest Club, uh, uh, Barclay was chided for his plan. After patiently listening to his detractors, Barclay then allegedly explained the project to them with such animation and eloquence that they were speechless. Supposedly after a short pause, the crowd all rose together and said, let's set out with him immediately. By the winter of 1724, Barclay left Ireland for London and began to press his case with the government. This was also the time he first published his plan under the title, A Proposal for the Better Supplying of Churches in Our Foreign Plantations. And he joined the Society for the Promotion Promoting Christian Knowledge. Thus, by 1725, Barclay was publicly committed to Bermuda and was investing all of his time and effort to ensuring its success. As his initial efforts were seemingly favored by Providence, considering the timing of an unexpected inheritance from Ms. Uh, Mrs. Hester Van Holm, known to literary history as Swiss Vanessa, and his appointment to the Deanery of Derry, Barclay's hopes rose to increasingly, law, increasingly lofty heights, and his scheme captured public imagination. Now, if we look at Barclay's proposal, uh, originally published in 1724 with a second edition the following year, this is what announced his missionary intention. This was the plan. This is what he hoped to do. And it was aimed at a popular audience. Barclay was trying to persuade his readers that there was an urgent need for additional clergymen in the American colonies. He suggested that the missionaries who had been sent to minister to the colonies were generally underqualified, while their scarce numbers meant that, quote, the gospel has hitherto made but a very inconsiderable progress among the neighboring Native Americans, who still continue in much the same ignorance and barbarism in which we found them above 100 years ago. 
with vacant churches and degenerating manners failing to protect the spiritual health of the colonists and natives alike, Barclay argued that the institution of a missionary college would serve a twofold purpose. It would not only supply clergymen for the English churches, but would also provide a steady uh, supply of, quote, zealous missionaries well fitted for propagating Christianity among the savages. Now it's the second point, the goal of training Native American children, the barbarous savages as he referred to them, and this was in many ways the centerpiece of his scheme. At the heart of his plan was the belief that by co-opting Native American youths and raising them as quote unquote civilized Europeans, they would be later able to serve as ideal emissaries to their original peoples. Barclay suggested that the quote, children of savage Americans brought up in such a seminary and well instructed in religion and learning might make the ablest and properest missionaries for spreading the gospel among their countrymen. Underlying Barclay's plans for these children was a belief in the innocence of primitive people. Uh, they were a blank slate upon which Anglican doctrine could be etched. Now, countering the, uh, an anticipated objection to his plan um, and including an attack on Catholicism, Barclay noted that, quote, whereas the savage Americans, if they're in a state purely natural and unimproved by education, they are also unencumbered with all of that rubbish and superstition and prejudice, which is the effect of the wrong one. He continued by stressing that not only must the college seek to, quote, plant religion among the Americans, but it also must try to civilize these students at the same time. In the end, Barclay clung to the notion that if young Native Americans were taught religion and manners at the right time and in the proper manner, these lessons would produce civilized individuals that would be needed to spread the gospel among the Native people. Now, Barclay's plan for civilizing and Christianizing the Native Americans was embodied in his proposed curriculum. As explained in the proposal, the students at St. Paul's would experience a program that was closely modeled on the English educational system. In addition to the expected courses in religion and morality, Barclay suggested that they should be given a, quote, a good tincture of other learning, particularly of eloquence, history, and the practical mathematics, to which it may not be improper to add some skill in physics. Barclay eventually hoped to graduate between 10 to 12 students per year, which he believed would be extremely useful for spreading uh, religion among the Native Americans. And anticipation and preparation for this hard missionary life in the wilderness, all of the students, English or natives alike, were expected to earn a Master of Arts degree in the traditional liberal arts in Bermuda, and then travel to England to take holy orders, which obviously would prepare them for life on the frontier. Again, while this may seem somewhat unpractical, it is relatively close to a model that was used in, the, in some parts of New England. Now, given this emphasis on scholastic learning, Thomas Bray, the founder of the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts, took issue with this aspect of the proposal. Although acknowledging that colleges have their place, Bray claimed that for the education of Native Americans, quote, even a charity school, though taught, taught though by old women, would answer the ends better than professors of sciences, and the mechanics would be more useful taught amongst, among such than the liberal arts. So for those of you in the liberal arts, the attacks go back a long time, apparently. Uh, but this critique of Barclay's plan as being unrealistic was a common refrain. Um, still, for Barclay, a firm foundation in the traditional liberal arts was essential to the success of his plan. He was more concerned with inculcating virtue within his prospective charges than ensuring their skill in practical matters. With economic concerns playing an increasingly large role in British society, Barclay contended that it was essential that supports for ethics and religion be buttressed. Barclay continued this argument by stressing that the relative pauperism of Bermuda cultivated the virtue of its inhabitants, making it easier for them to live moral lives. 
he observed that, quote, if they have less wealth, then they have less vice and expensive folly than their neighbors. The rocks upon which St. Paul's would be built, as sketched by Barclay, were Christian morality and virtue, not the sun-dappled shores of indolence, luxury, and Caribbean leisure. If the conversion of Native Americans was to be an important part of the proposal, there still remained the question of where these individuals will be found, since Bermuda was an island with few inhabitants. Barclay's solution was to suggest that, quote, young Americans necessary for this purpose may be in the beginning procured either by peaceful means from those savage nations which border on our colonies and are in friendship with us, or by taking captive the enemy of our children's. He took care to suggest that only the youngest children be taken, those who, quote, are under, under 10 years of age before evil habits, evil habits have taken root, and yet not so early as to prevent them from retaining their mother tongue. In short, he advocated for the forced abduction of young Native Americans to serve as the students at St. Paul's. This almost sounds like something that Swift could have written. While these tactics may not have been particularly unusual during this time, it's hard to view for kidnapping and forced conversion as anything other than horrific. Even as his contemporaries recognize that this plan was completely unrealistic. Writing to Barclay's friend Percival shortly after a visit to Virginia, William Byrd noted that, quote, there are no Indians at Bermuda nor within 200 leagues of it upon the continent, and it will need the gift of miracles to persuade them to leave their country and venture themselves upon the great ocean on the temptation of being converted. I know but one way in the world to procure Indians for this purpose. The dean must have command of a half a dozen regiments, of which he or one of his professors in the quality of lieutenant general must make a descent upon the coast of Florida and take as many prisoners as he can. This will be altogether as wise and as meritorious as a holy war used to be of old. Um, and if these Gentiles may not be converted by fair main, means, he may take the French way and dragoon them into Christianity. Clearly, by any standard. These attitudes toward Native American youth were problematic at best and more appropriately seen as a hor horrific precursor for later Indian schools that did so much to undermine Native families for centuries. Now, Parkley's plans for Native American youth were awful, but his stress on the cultivation of religion at the college should also mention his foray into the contemporary dispute over whether slaves should be converted to Christianity. A common theme of clergymen during this time centered on refuting the colonial conviction that slaves should not be taught religious values, since a popular justification of slavery was based upon the assumption that as heathens, their rights could be curtailed. The danger of conversion, at least from the colonial master's perspective, um, at least rhetorically, stemmed from the fear that if slaves were Christianized, they would be entitled to their freedom. Thus, missionaries' activities that threatened this delicate balance were seen as potentially undermining the social system. For Barclay and other missionaries of this time, this explanation for the status quo could not be accepted, although neither he nor they was willing to call for the elimination of slavery altogether. One of the main concerns of colonial slaveholders centered on the belief that the religious instructions of slaves would undermine their economic value. On the most basic level, the conversion of slaves would increase the cost of maintaining their holdings. Not only would time and money be consumed by the actual instruction itself, but church attendants were cut into the practice of having slaves work on Sundays. Socially, colonists also asserted that notions of religious equality made slaves, quote, haughty and dissatisfied and increased the danger of insurrections. Taken in conjunction with the general belief that slaves of African origins were, quote, unquote, irrational creatures, many plantation owners used these arguments to justify their own lack of religious spirit. 
Now, for some members of the Church of England, the plate of colonial slave souls was an important issue. While Thomas Bray and the, the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts played an important role in encouraging the religious education of slaves, it was Morgan Godwin who first pioneered this principle. An Oxford-educated minister who had earlier served as a rector in Virginia, Godwin published a series of tracts during the 1680s that decried the spiritual state of colonial slaves and their masters and sought to undermine the economic arguments against religious education. One of the most influential of these works, The Negro and Indian's Advocate, in, in this piece, uh, Godwin strongly argued for the rationality of African slaves and their right to religion. He not only contended that slaves had a natural claim to exercise religion, but further stressed that it was wrong for their masters to hinder this effort in any manner whatsoever. According to Godwin, it was, the, quote, the strictest duty of slave masters to persuade and win them to become Christians. The problem, as Godwin saw it, stemmed from the overwhelming influence of greed among colonial slave owners. In the competition between the pursuit of wealth and souls, Godwin feared that too many planters were choosing the former. Still, Godwin was convinced that economic issues were no excuse for the slaveholders to withhold religious instruction from their charges. He noted that while colonists claimed to fear, quote, great mischiefs from the Negro slaves becoming Christians, the root of their inaction stemmed from a lack of religious spirit. For Godwin, the main cause of the slaves' irreligion stemmed from the slave owners' concern for, quote, their estates and worldly interests, both of which were seen as being dearer than religion. Lamenting the lures of wealth, he castigated the colonies, the colonists, quote, who for the most part do not know any other God but money, nor religion but profit. Godwin was convinced that if slaves were exposed to the virtues of Christianity, they could be converted and saved. Thus, while he objected to the physical treatment of slaves, he was more horrified by their owner's role as, quote, murderers of souls, since they went out of their way to keep slaves ignorant of Christianity. Now, despite his great concern for the spiritual welfare of colonial slaves, Godwin did not claim that these individuals should be free. Responding to the fear that baptism would effectively free slaves, Godwin suggested that his objection to conversion was grant. This objection to conversion was was groundless on two points. He first pointed out that a number of colonies, such as Virginia and Maryland, had already enacted laws prohibiting this from occurring. At the same time, Godwin suggests questioned whether there was any religious basis for the notion that baptism could affect the physical liberation of slaves. In the end, he concluded that. It was, quote, clear enough that Christianity doth not lessen any obligations of servants to their lawful masters, clearing the path for slavery and religion to coexist. Thus, while not necessarily objecting to the fact of slavery, he sought to change its practice, hoping that Christianity could play a lar larger role in the lives of both colonists and their slaves alike. In the proposal, Barclay followed Godwin's objection to the settlers' lack of concern for their slaves' spirituality. He attacked the, quote, small care that hath been taken to convert the Negroes of our plantations, who, to the infamy of England and the scandal of the world, continue heathen under Christian masters and in Christian countries. For Edwin Gostad, uh, this call for the conversion of slaves is seen as an indication that Barclay held relatively advanced views on the issue of race. If he believed that Christian, the, the conversion to Christianity was a legitimate option for black slaves, Gostad claimed that then neither blackness nor slavery meant a spiritual inferiority or separation. At the irreducible minimum, this meant that black slaves too had souls. Still, while Barclay may have been called, may be seen 
as calling for the spiritual advancement of slaves. This didn't dissuade him from endorsing the institution of slavery. Berkeley argued that not only should colonists convert their slaves for spiritual mean, means, but for temporal means as well. He contended that this conversion would be, quote, of advantage to their affairs, to have slaves who should obey in all things their masters according to the flesh, that their slaves would only become better slaves by being Christians. Rather than arguing for the improvement of slaves as humans or as ch children of God, Berkeley tried to persuade settlers that their sla slaves should be saved, but only to make them better slaves. Now, this tension between the economic demands of the colonial economy and the religious aims of the missionaries points to an important problem facing Berkeley and early, other early 18th century thinkers. While theologians may, be, may have been deeply concerned about the spiritual plight of colonial slaves, the calls for reform were constrained by the practicalities of the political order. English settlers feared that any tactics that weakened their ability to compete with the French and Spanish in the Americas would be self-defeating. As a result, in many cases, economic justifications overrode religious aspirations for colonists and missionaries alike. Still, it doesn't mean that there wasn't a religious or, or even an eschatological dimension to Barclay's plan. Uh, and it's important to note that Barclay's plans for, for religious re renewal were devised in the shadow of the excess and corruption associated with the South Sea bubble. And they focused on America. In the proposal, he hinted that the old world was in danger of falling into complete corruption. He observed that, quote, in Europe, the Protestant religion half of late years considerably lost ground. And America seems like the likeliest place wherein to make up for that which has been lost in Europe. Taking complaints of, of his earlier essays and work to a pessimistic conclusion, by 1724, Barclay seems to have determined that Britain was dangerously close to facing its final destruction. Nonetheless, he held out hope, claiming that notwithstanding our present corruptions, there are to be found in no other country under the sun of better inclination. There are to be found in no country under the sun men of better inclinations or greater abilities for doing good than in England. Unfortunately, these indications and inclinations had not been guided by sound strategy and had failed to blossom. And faced with this dilemma, Barclay sought to turn his readers to a rejuvenation of virtue and what we would today call Western civilization, um, preferably in the form of subscriptions to his plan. In this manner, Barclay hoped to fulfill the goal of facilitating the transfer of learning and religious values to the new world. And it was in 1725, at the peak of his lobbying for the Bermuda, Bermuda scheme, that Barclay wrote one of the shortest, most influential, but, but most influential works, his poem, America or the Muse's Refuge. In this peak piece, Barclay drew upon a contemporary revival of interest in the medieval notion of translatio imperi or studere. This belief was premised on the double notion that the seed of world empire and learning was always carried forward by a single dominant nation and that direction of this movement was from east to west. Over time, this model uh, of the movement of empire and the arts gained a religious dimension as well, a translatio religionis, um, particularly among Protestants looking at the new world. During the early 18th century, this notion of a westward transfer of empire, learning and religion enjoyed a resurgence of popularity as writers throughout the emerging British Empire used this literary convention to explain and justify the expansion of British imperial power. For instance, the religious variant of this argument was commonly, evo commonly evoked in the annual sermons of the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel. In 1729, Zachary Pierce's sermon explicitly outlined the route and road taken by Christianity, suggesting that it might eventually come to rest in the new world. 
The next year, John Den's sermon went even further, claiming that the spread of Christianity in America could serve two purposes. Not only was it important to proselytize in the name of God, but would also be wise to, quote, plant the gospel in the newly discovered continent of America, where we may have some place to flee to, an asylum from, perse from persecuting infidels, if God in his judgment should permit it to be lost in Europe, as he did hitherto in Asia and Africa. In a similar manner, um, in, each, or, uh, in a similar manner, which Richard Smallbrook suggested in, in his 1733 sermon that through the society's efforts, quote, the pure Christian religion may have some retreat prepared for it in America. Now, in each of these cases, the language used by these authors, Barclay's Refuge, Den's Asylum, Smallbrook's Retreat, indicate that Christianity may eventually need a safe haven outside of Europe, and was this version of the Transvaluate tradition that provides the greatest insight into Barclay's motives concerning Bermuda. During the first half of the, of the 18th century, Barclay's poem was perhaps one of the clearest applications of the Transvaluate process to the Atlantic colonies. By this point, the notion of the Transvaluate uh, as movement uh, existed as a composite concept with at least three levels, religious, political, and cultural. Barclay's poem is unique in that it managed to include all three of these discursive layers while also suggesting a justification for his Bermuda venture grounded in a vision of historical development. Furthermore, the failure to recognize the presence of these historical languages in Barclay's work and that of his contemporaries has resulted in a general um, nescience of concerning the broader appeal of tra the Translatio tradition within the Atlantic world. Now, if we look at, at the, this poem, America, Berkeley explicitly linked the rise and fall of empire and the arts with the general westward movement of culture, specifically modeling his work upon this historical scheme. He began with an evocation of an image of European decline and colonial potential, claiming that, quote, the muse disgusted at an age and climb, barren of every glorious theme in distant lands now awaits a better time. After extolling the virtues of the new world, Berkeley contended that there shall be sung another golden age, the rise of empire and the arts, not such as, Brit as Europe breeds in her decay. Envisioning the transfer of empire and learning to the new world, Barclay stressed the potential greatness of the American colonies as a future repository of European political and cultural values in sharp contrast to the decay of the, of the old world. Barclay's closing stanza uh, combined a belief in the westward course of empire with an optimistic vision of universal history. After describing the golden age to come, the final stanza proclaims, Westward, the course of empire takes its way. The first four acts already passed. The fifth shall close the drama with the day. Time's noble, noblest offspring is the last. Taken as a whole, this poem contained the seeds of a complex vision of historical development predicated upon the westward movement of religion, empire, and learning. Barclay, like many others during the early 18th century, increasingly began to doubt virtue's future vitality in England. Faced with the images of corruption and immorality, the logic of the Translatio process began to look increasingly appealing to colonial and English thinkers alike, and then even more so to American thinkers later. Seeking to, uh, at this point though, seeking to preserve the cultural legacy of Europe, the creation of a refuge or asylum for virtue in the new world held particular appeal. As such, the creation of a missionary college in Bermuda seemed like a worthy vehicle to foster the spread of spirituality and learning in the colonies. But Barclay's venture shows that the power of this argument was not limited to rhetoric, 
but could also mobilize individuals to large scale undertakings. And furthermore, this vision of Western migration of empire would later play a pivotal role in the, the formation of the American notion of manifest destiny, which also raises questions concerning Barclay's culpability of in colonial projects and American exceptionalism. Now, Barclay spent two, years, spent two years preparing for his departure to the New World, and a lot of this time was trying to get the money that had been promised by the government for St. Paul's um, until the money and gathering recruits. Until the money was in hand, few, few people were willing to commit themselves to traveling to Bermuda. At the same time, the fact that he was constantly delaying his departure began to fuel doubts concerning his sincerity. Based on this dilemma, Barclay decided to sail for Rhode Island in September of 1728, believing that it would serve as a base for eventually supplying Bermuda. And that was the only way to prove his sincere devotion to his plan was to set forth. Despite Barclay's best efforts and an auspicious beginning, his Bermuda plan eventually failed. Um, although there is a Bermuda Institute in, 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 on the islands. Uh, shortly after his arrival in Rhode Island, Barclay purchased a farm and built a house outside of Newport, uh, Rhode Island, in which he planned on awaiting the 20,000 pounds that had been promised to adventure by the government. At this time, Newport was a center of the American slave trade, and the city's social circles were replete with slave owners. We know that Barclay himself owned slaves while in Newport. On October 4th, 1730, Barclay is recorded as purchasing, quote, a Negro man named Philip, age 14 years or thereabouts. A few days later, he purchased, quote, a Negro man named Edward, aged 20 years or thereabouts. On July, June 11, 1731, quote, Dean Bar Bar Barclay baptized three of his Negroes, Philip Anthony and Agnes Barclay. When he left Newport to return to England in 1731, Barclay bequeathed this land and slaves to Yale University, which used the funds to generate, uh, funds generated to supply scholarships for its students. Consequently, Yale students directly benefited from slave labor for nearly half a century. This fact, coupled with his written proposals for Native Americans, suggests that parts of his legacy need to be reassessed. His Bermuda proposal contained repugnant attitudes toward Native Americans, even if they were never put in place. Likewise, his suggestion that slaves be converted was predicated upon the notion that this would improve the system of slavery rather than abolish it. Finally, uh, or additionally, he actively participated in slavery through his purchase of at least three slaves. Finally, even the philosophy of history that provided the motive for this ground, for this plan, was grounded in the westward, well, the idea of being this westward movement of empire, had far-reaching and unintended consequences for American notions of exceptionalism. So what are we supposed to do with them? Um, how do we view this legacy? And I think it's really important to place figures such as Barclay in their historical context. And that's what I've tried to do today. But it's also important to recognize their flaws as well as their intellectual contributions. In the case of Barclay, I would argue that the first step is to see how his actions and ideas related to one another. His participation in the slave trade was certainly egregious. However, however the overall trajectory of his plans for Native Americans, actually even more problematic. Um, so as we move forward in reassessing the legacy of individuals such as Barclay, we need to be cognizant also of how their veneration may have had an impact upon people today. And we need to be thoughtful and intentional as we move forward. We can acknowledge their flaws. We can remove them from their pedestals without necessarily jettisoning all of their contributions. Um, for instance, on October 1st, a little over two weeks, or a little over a week ago, Tiger Lily uh, Hobson, a reporter for the Yale News, 
wrote a thoughtful article about the impact of Barclay's name being applied to one of the university's residential colleges. Um, she interviewed a number of the, the students um, about how did they feel about living in a building emblazoned with the name of a man whose beliefs would not align with their own and whose actions may have been uh, directly harmful towards them. Um, and in, in, in the words of one of these students, uh, a Jason Jiang, um, quote, uh, he's quoted as saying, judging by the fact that this was Yale and that this person was probably super old, he was probably an asshole. Now, I'm not willing to go quite so far as, as Mr. Jiang, but I do think that one of the first steps in this process is to understand the situation, to, to discuss it, to acknowledge the flaws of these figures while thoughtfully and contextually understanding their actions and ideas. Um, we need to be cognizant of changing social mores while also recognizing that our heroes may not stand up to the light of modernity. However, rather than jettisoning all questionable aspects of the past, I would suggest that a nuanced and intentional reconsideration of these figures at events such as, well, today, um, to discuss and develop plans that account for the complexity of these questions is the most productive way to move forward, the most uh, effective way for us as scholars, as citizens, as individuals, to really come to, to understand these figures, both within their historical context and what could be expected of them as early 18th century figures, but also their legacy and the, the impact that that legacy has upon individuals today, whether it's Robert E. Lee, no longer on the pedestal down the street from me, or the Barclay Library across the quad from you. Um, thank you, and that is my presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. That was wonderful. I think you've um, raised a whole range of issues. And I suspect there'll be plenty of questions. And I think you really started the process very well of sort of a new, I think your final words there, a nuanced reconsideration of Barclay. And I think absolutely this is this is this is the way to do it, is to then is to think about these things in a sort of nuanced, but I think also to looking at the context. I'm, I'm struck, I suppose, if it's just to kick off here, one thing that strikes me is in terms of context and this has come up a little bit there's a temptation to say well you know is he that different from other people and the argument that you're pursuing in terms of his attitudes particularly towards i suppose native americans and the sort of potential for forced conversion and forced education um let alone the sort of the influence of of the of america um as a text do these put them further beyond the sort of average do-gooder clergyman of the late mid-1720s, early 1730s? I think, I think he was in a position where he could have done a lot of good. And I'm, as I'm sort of thinking through some of this, I'm increasingly concerned with the, the sort of silences where people could have made a difference and didn't. And I think that when, when I first read through all of Barclay's work for, for the, uh, the book on, on a sort of social thought, he never really picks up some of any of these issues. I mean, he, he does at various points um, discuss slavery. Uh, there's a few references to it in The Queerist when he's discussing uh, sort of Irish Catholics as, as being in a position vis-a-vis Protestants as um, being akin to slaves, but he doesn't address it in an intentional manner. And I, 
I think some of this, in fairness to him, I don't want to spend all my time bashing him or else who knows what's going to happen with the thing behind me here. But um, I think it just wasn't something that entered his mind. I mean, he, he was in this circle that was concerned with the inculcation of virtue, the importance of ethics, uh, trying to real viewing a society in the 1720s that he viewed as, as reeling from the, the corruption of the South Sea bubble. And from his perspective, he wanted to find a way of increasing morality, but he wasn't really concerned about how that affected everybody. Um, he wasn't concerned particularly about how that had an impact upon, say, the Irish Catholics, right? And that's something where could, all sorts of other issues could be brought up and um, not, not necessarily today. Um, but he, he had almost, there's no published writings that deal with slavery. And even, even uh, he, there were two editions of, of the proposal, one 1724, one 1725. He added a section about the importance of slavery um, and addressing uh, the conversion of slaves in the 1725 edition, primarily because there was a rumor that a, a certain amount of land could be sort of bequeathed to the, to the uh, plan if it addressed slavery as well as Native Americans. Um, but I don't think, from his perspective, this just, this, these were not issues that entered his mind. I mean, we can, we can uh, refer to him as sort of the, the absent-minded philosopher, so to speak, but um, by and large, I mean, he, he was concerned with society, he was concerned about economic issues, but he was not really thoughtful or intentional about how those people who did not have power um, really were viewed. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's striking as well that even in his published work, he doesn't really comment on slavery hugely. And even it were in his, com yeah. his comments on the South Sea bubble, he never sort of, it's a, it's a slave trading company at its heart. <laughs> and the money that that foundation capital from Esther Van Hombrick is South Sea shares. So there's a, there, there are other pillars yeah. to it, which I think, anyways, I think there are a number of other questions here. So I'll come back to this. But um, first question here from Andy Hernandez asking us just about why was Barclay so ardent in convincing public opinion? So I think this also links into that sort of wider question. Was society indispensable in order to achieve his program? Um, to, to a certain extent, uh, he, some of it was, and, and, and Barclay's a really interesting figure from my perspective, and uh, his reputation is often uh, described by philosophers. I mean, he's, he's primarily a, known as a philosopher, um, but as a, as a historian, He's, he's involved in all of these different moments in time that were extremely influential and, and popular as well. I mean, I've, I've sometimes described him as sort of the, the Forrest Gump of the early 18th century. Um, he, he appears at these moments, um, even if he isn't central to them. And in this case, what he really needed to, to get public opinion was he needed money. Um, he needed uh, funds to be able to, to purchase the land that was going to be set up in, in Bermuda to build the College of St. Paul's, um, to hire the professors who were going to come and, and develop the uh, wonderful program of liberal arts, which I wholeheartedly approve of, um, maybe not necessarily for these, for these individuals. Um, but so the main reason was he wanted to get popular, popular opinion so that he could get the money to fund this uh, and to a certain extent, he, he sort of thrived on popular movements. I mean, later in his career, there's the whole uh, tar water incident, um, which, which also sort of took everyone by storm. 
Um, but but by and large, I think that his main concern was gaining popular support so that he would just on a practical matter so that he would be able to 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 do it. Yeah, no, it's very clear. He was a he was adept at this. He chunged us yeah. Trinity's library itself in terms of getting popular support and getting money for it. Um, he's, he's, he's a fundraiser as well. He's both a very modern university academic and a very free modern one. Um, question here then from Andrew Keefe. Um, wondering if your findings can help us understand how Barclay's views about indigenous people in Bermuda and America compared with his views about native Irish people. And just I suppose to link that into a question here from Claire Moriarty, one of our Barclay specialists here. Um, what are your thoughts on the way that Barclay discusses native Irish people and children in the queerest as against both native Americans and black enslaved people in America. Perhaps there are consequences for thoughts on the Barclay Library and our historical student population here. Um, <coughs> so yes, yeah, but just linking Barclay's thoughts on America, on America with, Arla, with, with Irish people. <coughs> I think uh, um, it, uh, he will, at least in his writings and in his letters, uh, conflate them in some ways, draw parallels between the situations. But to a certain extent, he's more hopeful about the prospects of uh, com co the conversion of the Native Americans, because in his mind, they hadn't been exposed to Christianity. They weren't uh, sort of brought up in the wrong religion and needed to be changed. They were, they were again, they were sort of the, the early 18th century, I, I mean, the idea of primitivism, right? That, that these individuals were blank slates upon which he could etch Christianity, uh, particularly Anglicanism. And so to some degree, I think what he's he's doing is he is making comparisons between the two, um, and and the question about like uh, do we want to link this to, to civilization to a certain extent? Um, I, I, one of the things that I think is important as we as we're thinking through this, and and it actually came to me earlier today because this this morning uh, there was I saw online there was an editorial in the Wall Street Journal which was defending Columbus Day. Um, saying well, and and making the argument that we that he was a, a figure of his time, and we should understand him as a figure of his time, and was slavery appropriate then? And and I mean, which which an argument which which we're we're familiar with. But uh, one of the responses to it, which I think is really pertinent, is um, we can view these figures, whether it's Columbus or Barclay, as figures of their time, and and how others would see them. But we have to view it not just as how their peers would see them. But rather, if we want to take the case of Barclay and, and their Bermuda plan, how would the Native Americans seen this plan? How would the slaves seen this plan? Um, how would the Irish Catholics seen this plan? Um, and I think that it's important to contextualize them. It's important to tr these, these types of figures. And, and as we assess their uh, legacy, I think it's, it is important to try to get a sense of their motives. Um, and I think we do have to view them as within the, the historical context of what was really possible at that time. Like, what could we expect somebody who is sort of reasonably mainstream during the early 18th century to have in terms of views of Native American culture, um, of slavery? Like, how does that fit? But I think that if we're going to, we, we need to be honest about what their flaws were and acknowledge them. And, and we, 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 can, we, we don't expect people today to be perfect. We can't expect these people to be perfect. But I think what we do need to do is, is to be thoughtful about how the veneration of these figures, or at least uncritical veneration, um, has an impact upon people today.
Yeah, and that leads to so there's a number of other questions coming in. Um, I, I think just I suppose on sort of today issues, and then we can go back again to philosophy. Um, question, um, two questions coming in, I suppose, about Berkeley and sort of his position today, and one from um, Dr. Mobin Hussein, who works with me on the Colonial Legacies Project, just asking, I suppose, generally about reassessing actions and contributions of historical figures. How should we deal with commemoration and naming practices? Consider ongoing impacts of such individuals. And you've sort of highlighted some of that, but possibly say a little bit more. And one question here from Takura Oda. Similarly, um, whether you want to say this, whether you want to say further on this is, could you deliberate more about your honest view to change the name of Barclay Library for Trinity? As you argued in your book, and he said, well, he quotes page seven to ten, does Barclay's Irish patriotism as a true patriot still lend itself to keeping the library's everlasting name? Um, I'm intrigued on that. As somebody who's also cited Barclay's patriotism, uh, thinking all of these things true previously, these, these, things, these questions bother me as well. <laughs> I'm, I'm just impressed to, to, to know anybody bothered to read the book. So, um, so thank you for that. Uh, I think that as, as, as we're reassessing these, um, I, I don't think there's like a, there, there's, no, there's no right answer. I think there are many wrong answers. Um, I think that when we're reassessing and these actions and contributions, I think there are many figures who lived in the past. Um, there are many figures in the past who did important things. Um, however, we want to view important things. Um, but I think that, if we as citizens of, of today are going to venerate people of the past, we, we need to do it with our, with our eyes open and, and acknowledge those flaws. And, and, and in some cases use those as opportunities for sort of, uh, sort of like what we would call it, like teachable moments or learning opportunities to, to, to better understand that, that the, the, the great women and men of the past had their flaws as well. Um, and so I, I think, but, but and, and going back to that, the, the bit I ended with in, in from Yale, I, I think that's also important to sort of recognize the impact that these people's lives or their commemoration of their lives may have upon people today. Um, so for instance, in, in Richmond here, uh, one of the main roads through Richmond is, is Monument Avenue. And there was this big, as you may be aware, there was a large statue of, of uh, Robert E. Lee sort of uh, at, at the forefront of this. And there was a whole series of other statues of other leaders of the Confederacy. And they all came down in the past year. Um, that was a situation where you had these large tangible symbols of oppression that people had to drive by every day or walk by or live by and had an immediate impact upon their lives. Um, and so I think then those cases and, and, and not just these lives, but the lives of their families, like a few generations back. Um, I mean, here, here in Richmond, you could probably go back three generations and find people who, who were, uh, I mean, who had, had been slaves or, or at least their parents were. So it's a direct impact there. Um, and I think that makes it even more relevant and, and more need to be, uh, more urgent need to be, be cautious about it. For, um, for figures like, like Barclay and in terms of the library, I, th I think it's a it, 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 there's a need to be a little bit more nuanced. Um, I mean, if I, 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 today I, I really did try to highlight in many ways, what would we 
if we're looking for the sort of dark stains on his on his career, th these are pretty dark. Um, but in in one hand, the attitudes that he displayed toward the Native Americans, while we can find them repugnant today, were commonplace at the time, um, and they were never acted upon. Now that doesn't mean he didn't try, but um, in terms of the direct impact upon individuals' lives during the time, it may have been a little bit lower. Uh, in terms of slavery, he was engaged in it, defended it, um, but that was not central to his identity or what he was doing. Um, and we could say he was misguided by um, failing to recognize um, or at least failing to adequately use his voice to support Irish Catholics, um, freed slaves, um, but his, his record on that, on, on those issues too are mixed. I mean, he did try to work with Catholic, with Irish Catholics. Um, some of his later work, uh, he sort of recognized and moved toward, toward more of a conciliatory position. And in many ways, his position in terms of religion was more sort of broadly Christian as, than, as opposed to sort of, uh, even, uh, sort of hardcore Protestant, so to speak. So I, 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 I think that his efforts were aimed at what he believed to be the national good. And if we look at the course, look at other parts, he wanted every part of, of the country, every segment of the population to participate in that. He definitely saw differences. So if to get to the Trinity Library, I mean, I could make a, to me, the naming of the Trinity Library seems less egregious than a statue of Robert Lee. Um, it's also further in the past. Um, he wasn't, his reputation, his legacy is not, was not devoted toward, I mean, he did not write tracts defending slavery. Um, for him, it was sort of an afterthought. And we can view that as thoughtless. We can view this as a missed opportunity. We can view this as, as a sort of silence that, that should have been addressed. Um, but I, I don't think that it, it rises to the same level as some of these other monuments today that, that certainly rightfully are being changed. I know that's a waffling answer, but um, I'm a couple thousand miles away, so. No, absolutely. No, I think, I think that's absolutely fair enough. And I think these are, these are some of the questions that I suppose have come up in discussion on this whole issue. And also, I suppose, even in around the timing of the renaming of the library in the 1960s, in some ways, it's more interesting that that happened then than what happened what people knew with quite a lot about Barclay and a lot of his work had been published and this stuff was successful and nobody really commented on it um than on his actual on his actual actions at the time and I think you know I think there are there are ways one can read the queerists and read reread re, re, re it in light of sort of thinking about these issues and those passages of the sort of you mentioned there about the whole Irish population being able to be employed in different ways and he does talk about the sort of ways in which peoples elsewhere are used as you know the the walk the strolling beggars are used as slaves in other societies and things. So there are, there there are there. I suppose there are there are there are things that I think have probably been less attention has been paid to there. Anyways, I just want to move on because we have two couple of questions here specifically from the philosophers that I think is um striking um in terms of just wider ways of thinking about this um lost yes one from Alyssa Ander, Alexander um she wants to ask if you had any taught the in interaction between Berkeley's philosophy, which is thinking especially of his immaterialism and his conversion and education schemes. Since his philosophy depends quite closely on a theistic principle, would you like to hear your opinions on that? As, as linked to that is a question from Kenny Pierce, 
is asking about the connections between Barclay's colonial slaveholding activities and philosophical ideas, which is best known or not obvious, though he sus suspects that there might be some connections, intrigued. And I'm wondering for those of us who mainly, he's wondering for those who mainly concern themselves with Barclay's philosophy, how do you think we should be addressing these issues? <laughs> Well, I, I think those are, are really good questions. And I think that the, the connections, I mean, this is one of the interesting things about Barclay is that he he wrote on just about everything. I mean, whether it's mathematics, economics, uh, the philosophy, which he's obviously uh, most well known for today. Um, and I think that in some ways there are a few guiding threads that you can see throughout those, those works. Um, but in terms of a, a direct connection with uh, either his attitude towards uh, slavery, Native Americans, uh, at, at least in terms of those two issues, it, I, I, it's, it's hard to draw a direct connection with his philosophy. I mean, he could say, we, we, we could make the case perhaps that um, he was concerned that all individuals could, uh, participate in in knowing God, um, but that, that that's more of the religion as opposed to the sort of materialism per se. So I, I have to admit, I'm I'm a little bit. It's hard for me to draw a direct connection. I think that this is a case where his philosophy was more bracketed out um, or really didn't enter into. His thoughts on this, other than other than, of course, what the, the Native Americans should be be learning, and I suspect that to a certain extent, that's because I really don't think that it was a great concern that these issues, like, the, like he was concerned about setting up St. Paul's, he was, but he was not necessarily concerned about seeing how this project would link up to his larger philosophy. Um, other than in a sense of uh, inculcating virtue and how much he hated luxury and corruption and all that. Um, but in terms of his philosophical thought, it's, it, it, it's, there's not like that easy connection between them. And I think that that's because to a certain extent, he viewed this as a, the Bermuda plan as a vehicle for improving morality. Um, it, it had a, in his mind, a, a somewhat practical goal. Um, and that was removed from his philosophical goals to a certain extent. And I think that you could make a case that uh, after his trip to, to the continent and return and, uh, to, to witness the South Sea bubble, that's, that's when there's a shift in terms of his writing as well. I mean, he, he, even some of his later philosophical writings, almost everything he does after that is, is more directly concerned with practical issues. And I think that this, the Bermuda plan is sort of the, one of the, the key moments in that sort of reorientation of his concern to a certain extent away from philosophy. I mean, he doesn't go entirely away, but, but his, his, his main concerns being less philosophical and that philosophical thought being less central. Excellent. Um, I think there are any other questions coming in there at the moment. Um, I suppose, and it's so striking, um, that one of the things that strikes there is uh, just uh, is he doesn't really engage in anything quite as practical in terms of in you know, a public way thereafter. Like you know, he, he writes pamphlets in the 1730s, yeah. um, but you know, advocating practical sort of 
improvement to the Irish economy and extracts at the rarest and on banks and so forth. But he never he doesn't he never turns up at the House of Lords to try and initiate this. Do, do you think the Bermuda scheme turns him off actual active, practical doing things as distinct from writing about them, encouraging others to do them? I, I think it's, he does to a certain extent. I mean, he comes back and he was disillusioned. I mean, he had spent about 10 years of his li life moved halfway across the world, at least from, from his perspective, um, expecting that the 20,000 pounds had been promised to, to build this church, uh, to build, build the school was, was going to come and it, and it failed. And then he came, when he returned um, in 1720, uh, 1733, he was involved in some... Political maneuvering in order to get his uh, position as the bishopric of Foyne. Um, and I think that some of that really dissuaded him from really trying to have a practical impact. I mean, I believe um, I'd have to go back and, and double check, but I think once he was in Coyne, he only came up to Dublin to participate in Parliament uh, in a debate about the blasters in like 36 or something like that. And, and other than that, he does not actually participate in active politics. I mean, he does, uh, he, he writes lots of pamphlets. Um, he brews lots of tar water, uh, which, which again, is also really popular, but he, he doesn't get directly engaged. Now it could also be that he has a family at that point. Um, I mean, he got married right before to, uh, right before, literally right before they, they uh, set sail for Rhode Island. So I guess you could almost view his trip in Rhode Island as an extended honeymoon. Um, not really an image I've ever used before, but, uh, but, but, but then when they come back, they have children, they're in, in coin, they are raising their children in their household. Um, and I, I, I think that some of the the energy that he got from participating in, in London, whether it's uh, earlier when he was hanging out with uh, uh, Addison and Steele and Swift uh, in, the, in the early, like 1712, 1713, um, or in the 20s when he was sort of still a, a major figure in, in London, that's, that's kind of gone um, after he returns. And, and I, he still has connections. Um, I mean, through his letters, you can see who he's corresponding with and who he's mentioning. But he, he chooses not to do that. And I, I think some of that might just have to do with the, where he was in life at that point and perhaps disillusionment. Absolutely. Thank you very much. I think we've had a, a wonderful insight into sort of a, a nuanced view in many ways of Barclay and thinking about him in a whole, whole, whole range of different contexts. We also have two takeaway images of Barclay as a forest gump treading, treading the boards in, in Rhode Island and now Barclay on, Barclay on Honeymoon to finish this up there. Um, I'd just like to thank Scott Rinegar for again for an absolutely fantastic paper and just giving us an awful lot to think about and thank everybody for their questions and just to say... The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.